Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Damien Graham, Chief Investment Officer at First State Super. Uh, Damien, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Nice to be here. So I thought I'd kick off with um, the name change. Obviously, First State Super has just announced that uh, the name will be changing to Aware Super uh, in September. I wonder if you could give the the listeners a a backdrop to that name change and and what was the thinking behind it. Thanks, Alex. And again, by way of background, clearly First State Super has been been around for quite some time and more recently in the last couple of years there has been some acquisition with uh, State Plus and uh, even more recently 30 June this year we merged with Vic Super and I guess it's a great time for us to sit back and think well how do we want to be positioning ourselves from a brand perspective Uh, and so we reflected on that and have decided to go through a rebranding process uh, as Alex mentioned in September of this year so uh, really exciting times, and uh, one of the things that I think is always critical with any brand is that it, the name is only one small part of it, and it really is about the the why and the story that uh, supports that brand. And I think when we sat back as an organisation with Fix Super and thought about what do we want to be known for and how what would our our name be in future, we felt that uh, we wanted something that really did portray and reflect our organisation. Uh, the purpose we have, and really how we think about serving our members. And we know that our membership, uh, being the nurses, the teachers, the carers, the protectors in our communities, um, we felt that AWARE was a very aligned name that reflected the purpose we have. And we we do feel we're a very purpose-driven organisation, and so is Vic Super. So uh, why the merger was um, was such a good fit, whereby we wanted to come up with uh, one name across the three organisations where eventually we'll be known as Aware Super. Uh, and it really does reflect that awareness our members have, the awareness we want to take um, for all sorts of different issues, uh, whether it's around environmental issues, whether it's around worker rights issues, whether it's around how to make our members as aware of, as they can be around the future they have and their retirement. So uh, we felt it was a very nice fit for what we've always tried to do as an organisation and also uh, what we're going to try to do in future as we continue to grow in size and, and influence. So as, as part of that naming change, you announced a lot of targets uh, and actions that will be coming more specifically around energy and, and climate. Can you give a bit more context on, on what you've announced? Absolutely. So we did uh, at the start of this month announce an updating of our climate change portfolio transition plan. So we uh, put our initial plan together about five years ago or so and uh, what we felt uh, at the end of that five-year period, it was very timely for us to review, and we've been doing that over the last few months, review our targets and activity and uh, really look at how we're going to set the portfolio well for now and as the economy transitions to a lower carbon future. So when I think about um, the work we, we do around our responsible ownership, which is how we think about delivering a great long-term return, but also doing it in a way that our members would feel is appropriate and proud of, uh, we think of four key areas. 
And so those four key areas include how we think about managing the environmental, social and governance risks, so the ESG risks, how we think about investing in investments that can increase a positive impact or have a positive impact, but also reduce the negative impact uh, of other investments, how we can engage with the assets we own, whether that's a corporate asset, a, a listed company, for instance, or an unlisted business, and how we can advocate with government and policymakers to drive positive societal change. So our portfolio uh, transition plan contemplates each of those areas and activities and sets purposeful activities and some targets to try to affect a positive change from the environmental perspective over the longer term. So if you look at some of the specifics, we've got a target to support the uh, economy to transition to a 45% reduction in carbon emissions by the year 2030. We, we would also like to see our portfolio replicate that reduction over that time frame. And to do that, we've set some shorter term targets. Uh, one simple one is that we've decided to divest from thermal coal producers. Uh, we've also decided to reduce the carbon emissions from our listed equity portfolio by at least 30% over the next three years. So we have quite a strong target to reduce that. And we'd expect that to, to increase in the size of reduction over the ensuing years post 2023. What also we want to do from an unlisted perspective is really benchmark the assets, the key assets we own, and then understand how we can reduce their carbon intensity or carbon emissions. And they may be, uh, it may be an airport, it may be an industrial property, it may be an office property. Um, it may be an operating business where we're looking at how we can reduce the carbon emissions from those businesses to support that transition for the economy and our portfolio towards that target, that aspirational target of a 45% reduction over the next decade. Let's go into sort of the, the broader portfolio. You've given the impact across a number of asset classes there in terms of infrastructure and real estate and how that may change. Mm-hmm. Is there a possibility that you know, these restrictions on, on, on the carbon amount that uh, you, know, you can invest in or the, the amount of mm-hmm. impact, that that limits the potential for sort of greenfield projects in, in real estate or in infrastructure? Look, I'd, I'd say it's probably the opposite, Alex, with regard to um, eliminating greenfield. But if I think about, uh, from my perspective, the, the way that I, I touched on before of our key investment focus Uh, We term it as responsible ownership, and that starts with our fiduciary duty of good long-term returns to our members. So we know that's the critical deliverable that our members rely on us to deliver for their retirement. So, you know, our investment focus starts with how do we generate strong long-term returns and then turns very quickly to, in doing that, how do we ensure that we're also having a positive community or societal impact? And we think that that can happen in a very virtuous circle whereby we can generate strong long-term returns but also have that positive impact. And if we do that well, we also think that we can improve the risk-adjusted returns of the investments we're making. So a really simple example is investing in, in, in an infrastructure or property asset that we don't think is well set up for the transition to a lower carbon future may actually suffer a reduction in value if it's, if it's not in um, the right position or it's not an asset that can, can manage that transition well. So in everything we invest, we do 
appropriate scenario planning and testing to ensure that we feel that those investments are well positioned from an ESG perspective uh, so that there aren't uh, unintended risks in those assets that can see the, their future value fall if we do see the likely outcome where we've got to reduce the carbon emissions of the portfolio in total. Do you feel that that will change how you construct a portfolio? Because the what you're describing here in terms of individual assets, that sort of changes the sort of the the nature of the portfolio from more of a bottom up. Think about individual assets that you're putting together as opposed to risk factors. Yeah, look, I think I think it does, but it's been a longer term journey. So, you know, it's not like we've woken up today and said, "Gee, we need to think about ESG issues when we do our due diligence around a new investment." Um, we do have a blend of the top down and the bottoms up. So every asset where we look to buy, whether it's a, a new unlisted asset or it's a different style of investment, we have a consideration around the ESG and, and climate will be one of those um, facets or factors that we very much consider. Um, we do think about it in a broader portfolio context as well, though, and we think about the total. And uh, we, we think about, uh, or I think about, managing our broader portfolio so that the $120 billion or so today uh, from a budgets perspective. So, you know, we have a, a multitude of budgets that we're looking to optimise for, um, get the best outcome in, in allocating those budgets. And it may be the risk budget. It may be the liquidity budget. It may be the fee budget. It, it may be the uh, exposure budget. So who are our counterparties and how do we make sure we've got the right blend of counterparties? Um, it may be, um, you know, our, our carbon emissions budget, which again we're looking to moderate through time. So, how do we how do we ensure that our portfolio is best positioned to think about the risks that that transition will pose? And so, how do we make sure we're allocating money to to best manage that risk? So, those budgets are, are something that we think about every day from a top down perspective, but they also have the implications of the bottom up asset selection or security selection perspective as well. As you look into sort of the, the various ESG metrics, is that something that you guys will be doing internally or you'll be using external parties to help as you start to do this analysis? Yeah, so we do. It's interesting. Uh, for our uh, carbon emissions reduction target for our listed portfolio, we've actually created that uh, intellectual property internally where we've defined a benchmarking framework which allows us to have that reduction um, and we've used our internal systematic uh, equities team to do that um, and then we've we provided that intellectual property to a benchmark provider to to develop a benchmark that then our uh, passive managers and uh, our internal manager, managers can follow so it has been a nice um, example where we've been able to use the capabilities we've built internally from a internal investing perspective to develop a, a benchmark that we can then uh, follow for our listed uh, our listed equities, so that, that's been a really nice uh, nice leverage point on some of the capabilities we've been building up over the last five or six years. But we also do use external providers as well. So, you know, uh, it may be someone like an MSCI, or it may be um, for our international engagement we use Hermes, for instance. So, we certainly don't believe that we can do all of these activities ourselves, and we think there's a really good opportunity for us to to buy in the right expertise and to utilise that to um, to deliver better outcomes for members. You, know, you mentioned there about sort of using a number of partners. Is there any efforts to maybe partner with maybe local asset owners that are doing some very similar work? 
Yeah, and look, I mean, we, we, we certainly uh, sit on a number of collective uh, groups that are focused in different areas, but uh, it could be climate-related, could be governance-related, it could be uh, proxy voting-related activities. So we certainly uh, do sit on a number of boards or collective organisations focused on on those sort of issues and sharing information and making sure that we, we're all developing uh, and supporting the journey as best we should. We also do collaborate with different organisations, whether that's um, other asset owners domestically. We do have a lot of collaboration with asset managers, for instance, um, and that can be very useful, obviously, with regard to not just ESG-related issues, but broader research and investment research issues. Um, and But we're very open to making sure that we can collaborate and learn and uh, get value from different asset owners as well. And, you know, I think we, we don't think that uh, we can achieve the reduction uh, or the goal that I mentioned before, which is a reduction of carbon emissions for the economy by that 45% in the next decade. We certainly can't do that ourselves. So we, we very much feel that the, the, mo the more we can collaborate with institutional investors, other asset owners, and, uh, and there is a lot of alignment in, in, the, in that group around, you know, the goal to, to have a lower carbon future, that we think that, uh, that we're going to be more successful or more likely to be successful in that, uh, that endeavour. Yeah, as you think about all these, these issues around ESG and, and the amount of new factors you need to take into consideration gets larger, do you feel that the portfolio will become almost more concentrated in, in where you would like to be more active in sort of the investments that you take? It's interesting, Alex, because the way that we think about portfolios or I think about portfolios is in a hybrid context. So, you know, we, our investment belief states that we don't think there's only one way or there are many ways to invest. And so those many ways to invest may include active and passive. It may include listed or unlisted. It may include external management or internal management. Um, and so what we're trying to do across each of our sectors is define the best hybrid approach of all these different ways of investing that we feel is the most likely to deliver our return of outcomes, our return objectives. And so in some ways, and, and as we grow larger, I guess one of the things we also contemplate is how do we invest increasingly larger size of, of funds to be able to generate those long-term outcomes our members need? So we do think about that concentration risk very actively because I, I do think there is the risk that as you start to adjust portfolios or exclude various things or even um, have targeted outcomes, you can have unintended consequences around the concentration risk. One of the concentration risks that I've been focused on now for probably the best part of seven or eight years is just the residential property risk in Australia because I do think that Australian asset owners and larger investors uh, tend to have quite a high bias towards that, that, uh, that factor. Uh, and so we think about spending our allocation to that risk as wisely as we can, obviously. We think there's great opportunities for, for good outcomes, but we also know that that cycle has, um, has very strong implications for investment markets in Australia particularly, so that global diversification is a benefit in that light. It's interesting that you mentioned the residential property risk, and, and that's obviously a big one with with banking sector, with the, the banking sector being such a large part of the Australian economy as well. And that sort of opens up a different part of the ESG equation, particularly on the S side. You mm -hmm. know, how do you sort of think about where does that S framework, uh, how, how do you apply that to particular investments? Because in, in the case of, of banking, it gets really 
difficult to sort of work out, oh, hold on, they provide loans, but are they providing loans to mining companies that have high carbon or are they providing loans to people that can't afford to pay and there's a social construct that you know plays out there? How do you think about the S in, in this framework? Yeah, and one of the things that we do, uh, Alex, as an as a investment function is we do undertake specific um, research or have specific focuses. So if you look at our... Um, our focuses over the last year or two, it has been around climate transition. It has been around housing affordability. It has been around worker rights. And finally, around conduct and culture. And the conduct and culture piece uh, is very, very relevant to what you're raising around the S, the social piece, the social uh, license to operate uh, with any listed company. But obviously, the banks are a good example, um, you know, but, but all organisations are relevant there and we've undertaken some research and defined what we think is an appropriate process to try to ensure that we understand the best way to think through an organization's conduct and culture um, because we think that's a great indicator of future value um, and it can be at very blunt level through a loss of the license to operate it could just be through um, a cultural impact on their efficiency and their the way they can grow their market share or their earnings in future as well. So, you know, it, it can be more gradual than that. But we do think that that's an, a very critical issue, the culture of an organisation and the way that they conduct themselves as to, to the, um, the positivity or the positive potential for that uh, as an investment. Do you feel more pressure, you know, as a CIO in terms of trying to take into consideration all these factors when you also got a, a broader fiduciary duty to, to maintain? I think, as I said earlier, it does very much start with making sure we are targeted to generate the financial outcomes our members need. So, um, as I said earlier, though, the risk-adjusted return we feel can be bettered. There can be a better risk-adjusted return. So, getting a better return for the risk we're taking via understanding different risks. And there are additional risks we're contemplating today than we did 10 years ago as investors. You know, the social issues, as you mentioned, the environmental issues, as you mentioned, have certainly increased in their their, their focus. Um, I think ESG was very much dominated by the governance risk 10 years ago. I think now it's a much more even um, blend of the E, the S and the G. And uh, I think it's important. But I, I think it's important uh, in very strong focus because we think it can improve the risk-adjusted return we can get for our members uh, and reduce some of the downside risk if we manage those ESG risks as well as possible. So I think it's an important issue. Is it more complex? Probably, um, but investment markets are complex by their nature. So, you know, we're, we're always trying to ensure that we adapt as we need to, to think through the, the, the risks and the opportunities because these things throw up opportunities, not just, not just more work, but they certainly, if we're able to manage and understand these risks as best as possible, we think it will will uh, will offer offer some opportunities for new investments as well. Are you finding much trouble in terms of finding opportunities, particularly in the renewable space? I know a couple of uh, funds have sort of uh, mentioned that there's more opportunities globally as opposed to locally for renewable energy. Are you finding the same sort of issues? Yeah, look, I, I'd I'd say that um, I mean the Australian market in in a number of different uh, ways is. Um, 
you know, is a smaller market than the global market. Clearly, that's that's an obvious statement. So, I think that for renewables or for even some other areas, technology, health, those sorts of things, clearly it's a smaller market. Um, we made our first direct uh, renewables investment uh, in the last six months or so, um, and it was a sizable investment in the scheme of things. Uh, we've we've made around the world less directly, mainly through funds we've had. Uh, we've got additional exposure to renewables. And also we've been focused on trying to invest in uh, technologies that can support that climate transition as well. So, you know, we've got some exposure there. And I'd say that we think there's a good prospect of making more investments, both the renewables and the technology, the supporting technology side. Um, but it's not a huge part of our portfolio. And, you know, we've, I've got a stated objective to invest about another half billion dollars into renewables or transition technologies over the next three years. So that's a significant amount of money in the Australian context. Obviously, it's not a huge amount of money for our fund, but we think it's an important investment and it is a growing market. So we do think that there's, there's going to be more opportunities. I think also it's important that we build an understanding of that marketplace and we, it is quite complex renewables market in Australia. And so we do feel that um, you know, it's an important one to really continue to invest into and build our expertise so that we can take these opportunities in future. So you've, you've had historically, I don't know if you're going to continue a sustainable investment option, and then you've yep. got the normal balance fund. Given you mentioned that there are limited opportunities, does it make you know does it make sense that most of those opportunities then sort of sit behind the SRI fund, or do you merge the two? How do you think about sort of those two funds operating? I think that uh, the way that I've thought about it is that the SRI option is very much for people that would like to have um, a higher level of explicit exclusions um, in in the portfolio, but I think the broader portfolios, the the um, you know the, the the bulk of our assets, I think the direction is that we want to continue to embed uh, the ESG risk management into those broader portfolios. So um, I think that my my gut feel is that the broader options will start to you know, take on some of the characteristics of the SRI option, but the SRI option today is is a uh, more purpose-built from an exclusions perspective. Um, we do use some of the positive um, facets and factors in both portfolios. So, as I said, there there's a there's a you know a direction where the broader portfolio starts to take on some of the the uh, the positive attributes of the, the SRI, but um, it's not our purpose. It's not our suggestion that we would stop. Um, issuing or offering the SRI option um, anytime soon. So I think that my view is that there's a strong opportunity for that that uh, option for, for members that want to make that choice. Just going a little bit deeper into the SRI option, you know, is there particular uh, differences in the trustee documentation around that fund with respect to, for example, social housing where you know the housing has got a lower rental rate than maybe a market rate? Is that how you can potentially... Um, address the the social impact slash financial um, trade-off? Yeah, so we, and you, you may be mentioning, so our, our, we have a strategy that we're executing at the moment, which is to invest in affordable housing uh, for key workers. Um, that, that doesn't just sit in our SRI option, that sits across both portfolios. So, um, you know, we, we feel like that's a good investment and obviously it needs to be a good investment from a risk return perspective. 
Uh, and so we're, we've invested across uh, all options in that, um, that particular uh, strategy. And, and we feel that it is a very strong opportunity for us to, to build into a marketplace where we think the rental um, uh, predictability is very high. So we think there's a, a low risk of vacancy rates in that because again, we are, we are renting those to key workers at below the normal market rates. Um, uh, but uh, for the other side of that, we've been able to do that and rent them very quickly and have incredibly low effectively zero vacancy rates, even in a market right now where we're seeing residential uh, um, or rent, rental and vacancy around residential uh, properties increase. So we haven't, we haven't experienced that. And so it's a very positive um, experience for us in that affordable housing outcome, which we think will deliver a really strong long-term return for members. And we're looking to build more of those or, or buy and build more of those because we think it's a very attractive part of the property cycle and part of the property sector, given everything that's happening across retail, office, and uncertainties around COVID impacts there. And obviously, you know, the industrial market, which we have significant exposure to, but is pretty, feels pretty fully priced given the, uh, the way the property sector has been focused on that in the last five years or so. Let's, let's stick to the, to the property space and also sort of the renewable how do you think about the whole supply chain as you think about investments in these areas? You know, obviously the environmental, the output you know, of, of reducing carbon is one piece, but there's the whole supply chain that goes into building, for example, a new apartment block or even a renewable solar farm. You know, how do you sort of factor in all those parts of, of the uh, project? And are you talking about the the associated emissions in production, or correct? There's the whole supply chain as you think about the minerals, the um, process in creating um, the solar panels, the the whole yep. life cycle of the items that are that are used. It's interesting because one of the things that we've been undertaking in the last twelve months or so, as a specific activity, and and will form part in future of our climate transition plan is uh, an impact measurement framework for our real assets or our direct assets. So it's trying to contemplate what you're talking about, Alex, which is understanding what's the impact of um, the airport we own in Western Sydney, for instance, or an industrial asset or um, an agricultural asset. So trying to really understand what the, the impact broadly is. And it's not just around climate. It may be the employment impact. It may be... Um, the environmental impact around water usage. It could be um, energy usage more broadly. So we're trying to contemplate the sort of broader lens of the, the impact uh, for those assets, exactly along the lines of what you're saying so we can understand the downstream. Um, and we think by doing that process, we'll just build a greater understanding of what options we've got to, uh, to support a better outcome in future. Yeah, look, it, the reason I asked the question is that there has been sort of some debate around electronic vehicles that, yes, they're great yep. and they're uh, fantastic in the sense that they reduce carbon while you're using them, but there's a lot of carbon that goes into to build the car at the time. The energy often is used by some very high-intensity uh, fuels and, and gas and so forth to convert it into energy, and then on the end, you've got the battery that uh, is, is wasted effectively. So that yeah. was why I mentioned it. I think that's a really good point. So, you know, we, we do need to do the detailed analysis as to the, the fuller footprint. And it's not just about the, the end usage. We need to consider that. 
we've been undertaking research on a number of different themes, but certainly in the energy space, and it could be around gas as a transition asset, for instance, because, because clearly that's an important asset for or an important energy source today for Australia. Um, but we want to have a view or want to take a view as to what's the complete picture around gas uh, as one example um, when we're thinking around how we should invest across the energy cycle or the energy sector. It's interesting you mentioned gas because that is a big part, obviously, of of the Australian economy as well. So how do you then sort of think about it? For First State Super, your members aren't directly related to that area, but there are a number of super funds that really wrestle with this problem because it directly affects their members um, yep. from an employment point of view. Look, I think I think it's a really big issue for for us and and all investors in that um, you know as we transition to a lower carbon future, we do need to actively consider how we can support employment. Um, we've undertaken a or an initiative with the Victorian government, which is um, uh, called the Victorian Business Growth Fund, and that's a fund that we've established. We've invested, committed two hundred million dollars to it. The state government of Victoria, fifty million dollars. And that pool of assets is there to support business growth for small, medium enterprises because we know how important employment is, particularly in that area of the employment market. Um, and so I guess we've, we feel that the most successful economic outcome, particularly as we recover from COVID, will be where we can support employment and we can certainly um, – support small businesses to to hold on to employers employees sorry so you know we, we do think that, that transition to a, to the future has to contemplate how we can make sure employment is supported and uh, uh, maintained through time and so that that uh, transition is a really critical one I think it's very difficult but it's it's one that uh, you know we feel is going to need quite a lot of focus obviously the government's very focused on it and I think investors, are and should be as well to to think through how to invest to support economic growth and and obviously to support employment as well. Uh, and that Victorian Business Growth Fund is one small initiative we've undertaken to to try to lean into that issue. You mentioned the government there, and that was going to be my my closing question actually around sort of the the role of superannuation and nation building and what potentially you would hope to hear from the government to maybe sort of work more closely with super funds to sort of invest in larger maybe infrastructure projects or create some other sorts of affordable housing you know how can superannuation help in in sort of getting the the economy out of this current rut due to COVID um and and start to re-employ people again yeah I, look i absolutely agree with the question or the comment that um you know we we feel there's a need for all um parts of the economy to contribute so whether that's the government, whether that's private companies, private employers, uh, businesses investing, or whether that's institutional investors, super funds, I think there's a, a great opportunity for contribution across each area. And as coordinated as it can be from a policy and activity perspective, we'd expect to see the best outcomes. Um, and those outcomes will take time. Obviously, you know we're, we're facing into uh, an economy where there's likely to be heightened unemployment for quite some time. So, you know, we do need to support that employment. Um, and so I think policy certainty is always critical, whether it's around climate, whether it's around climate-related policy, um, the direction of how to invest uh, and the certainty that the investment assumptions will be uh, will last 
because we're, you know, when we invest money in, into a particular opportunity or area, there's always the need uh, to make assumptions. So the more accurate those assumptions can be where they're based on policy, um, the more likelihood is that members will get the returns that they're expecting and we can generate those returns. So that policy certainty is, is critical. Climate's one. Um, certainly uh, the way that uh, state governments and federal governments will think about development areas. Um, you know, the New South Wales government announced their renewable zone. So those, those initiatives are really interesting. And, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll understand what options that may, may offer us. Um, uh, certainly also uh, infra infrastructure more broadly with regard to infrastructure opportunities and where they may fit. We, we certainly are looking to invest um, some additional funds We've defined our capacity to invest in opportunities that aren't just within our normal uh, strategic asset allocation or our normal portfolio um, makeup. And that's a, a reasonably substantial amount of, of money that we think we could invest should we be able to find a, attractive opportunities. And again, the point that you started with, Alex, is a, is a critical one. Those opportunities need to be able to drive a good long-term return to our members so that we can meet the fiduciary duty we have as 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 a fund, um, but subject to that, we we we'd love to be uh, investing more to support economic growth and and supporting employment. Mm -hmm. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Damien. Thanks for yours, Alex, and uh, take care. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.